As many of you know, World War II began in 1939. The United States joined the Allied forces and entered into that war in 1941. But the turning point took place on June 6, 1944, also known as what? D-Day. It was really the beginning of the end for Germany. It would take some time, but the Allied victory was really established on that day. That's because D-Day was one of the largest military invasions in military history. On that day, there were 5,000 ships, 11,000 aircraft, delivering 156,000 soldiers to the beaches of Normandy. By the end of that month, so not too long after that initial invasion, there were 850,000 men who had arrived and 150,000 vehicles. The war would end less than a year after that day. In fact, many believe the outcome of World War I was determined on D-Day. The invasion broke the back of Germany forces in Europe. It threw them into chaos. And there was really no doubt how the war would end, even though there were battles to be fought, there were certainly lives that were lost until that day came. As I think about that, I think as a Christian, there's some similarities because the cross is our D-Day. That is the turning point in the war against sin, a decisive blow against our evil enemy that would determine the final outcome. Yet, as we know, there are still battles being fought until the day in which Christ returns. Now, the final outcome is certain, but the end has not yet come. And this morning, we have an opportunity to get a unique peek behind the curtain to see some of those battles taking place, a cosmic war that is not separate from what is happening within humanity, but one that seeks to disrupt the advancement of God's truth in this world. In a way, it's a propaganda war. It's a war of misinformation, a war intended to influence and shape the hearts and minds of all humanity. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm thankful for a passage, as hard as it is, but as important as it is, to see a little bit behind our normal view of life in this world, to see a world beyond, a spiritual reality of battles that are taking place even as we speak. So Lord, as we take a look at what your word says about what is happening here, would you help us gain clarity and understanding and may it motivate us to stand firm in the truth of your word, knowing the evil deception that is at work every single day. Lord, would you open our eyes and draw us in close to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Right, if you would turn to Daniel chapter 10, and would love for you to follow along with me as I begin reading in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. 
I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat, wine, or wine enter my mouth. Nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Now let me just pause here and just let you know up front that chapter 10 is unique. Because chapter 10 is really an introduction to the final vision that Daniel received described in detail in the last two chapters of Daniel, chapters 11 and chapter 12. Daniel has seen this vision and he tells us that it was difficult to receive, even though it was something that he did understand. And we need to know that it's difficult because it spoke about great conflict. And as we'll see, it not only dealt with conflict in our world, but also conflict in a heavenly realm as well. And it seems that the vision might have given Daniel some better clarity, unlike some of the other visions that we know left him a little bit confused. In verse 1 he says he understood the message as, as well as the vision. And I would say at least as best as he could, because the vision spoke about events that would take place well beyond his lifetime. So I think more likely he understood the big picture of God's work among God's people. In other words, what he understood was the reality of God's sovereignty, that he is always and ultimately in control. But before Daniel saw the vision, we learned that he was in a time of mourning. He says that for three weeks he's been fasting and praying. And as we hear that, we need to ask ourselves, why? What's on his mind? Well, you remember, Daniel was most deeply moved when he discovered that scroll of Jeremiah, the one that revealed the promise of God's people being released from captivity in Babylon after 70 years and being sent out to return and restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So he he prayed diligently in anticipation of that day. But by this time, according to how the chapter begins, we know that that time has come and gone. The initial decree from Cyrus has already been sent out. And only a small remnant of Jews were willing to return. The rest stayed back in Babylon. They seemed to prefer the comfort of their home in Babylon than the than to the hard work that it would take to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Because those who did return, reports came back and they found that they were facing fierce opposition from the moment they arrived. Even to the point that the working had to come to a halt because of all that opposition, at least temporarily. We we see those details being described in the book of Ezra. So perhaps this is the reason that Daniel is mourning and fasting, and praying. He's praying for God's people to trust God's promise. He wants them to move out of their comfort to fulfill God's declared will for his people. And after 21 days of fasting and praying, we learn that Daniel receives his answer. Look at verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was... By the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen from his waist and was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. 
His body was like beryl. His face, the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the, the sound of a tumult. So, so Daniel, as we know up until this point, has had more than one angelic encounter, hasn't he? But this one, as we're reading it, is already a little unique, isn't it? Unlike the others, this one comes with a very vivid description of the one who appears before him. It says that the one standing before him is dressed in linen. That's a symbolism of purity. That his waist was girded with a belt of pure gold. That his body was like beryl. So think of a stone like topaz, something that has this iridescent quality to it. It That his face was like lightning and there were fire in his eyes. His arms and feet were like polished bronze. And when he spoke, it sounded like rushing waters. Now, you need to know that this could very easily and maybe even likely be describing an angelic being. But there are some who hear this description and think that there may be more going on here. That, that maybe this is more than angelic being. Maybe this is a divine being. And here's the reason why. Turn to Revelation chapter, 12, chapter 1, verse 12. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which had been made to glow. (laughs) Now you know why I don't like electronic Sunday. Let me, let me back up. Let's, let's regroup. All right. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And I, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, sounds similar, doesn't it? But in Revelation, we know precisely who's being described here. It's the risen Christ. And so that leads some to believe that this may be the pre-incarnate Christ here in Daniel chapter 10. But whether it was one sent by God or God himself, the result is the same. Look at verse 7 of our chapter 10. It says, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. 
But I heard the sound of his words, and as as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Now, let me be clear here. If the previous vision that was being described was the pre-incarnate Christ, we need to understand this is somebody completely different. This is, in fact, an angelic being, maybe Gabriel, who approaches Daniel. He touched Daniel, giving him strength to rise to his hands and feet. Now, disregard what I just said. I got lost. (laughs) This is actually a lot like the vision of uh, Paul when he was on the road to Damascus. Okay? If you'll remember, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, he heard a great voice. He saw the risen Christ. Everybody else around him was scared to death because they couldn't see what he was seeing, but they heard everything that he was hearing. And I just wonder if maybe that's what's happening here with Daniel as well. But unlike what we see with Paul, although I say that, I guess it's very similar, Daniel in this case is also very afraid. It says that he lost all color in his skin as as the blood rushed to his vital organs. This is a very natural response to what happens to any human being when they're put in a frightful situation like this. It's called fight or flight. Or in Daniel's case, we might add one more. Fight or flight or faint. Because that's exactly what happens. When he hears the voice after having seen this vision, he falls flat on his face, unconscious. Now, look at verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. For I now have been sent to you, and when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I came in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to things yet future. When he had spoken to me according to those words, I turned my face fell toward the ground, and became speechless. Now, as I was saying earlier, if the vision that Daniel saw in front of him, described much like we see in Revelation, was in fact the pre-incarnate Christ, this is definitely somebody different. This is definitely an angelic being. Again, maybe somebody like Gabriel. We don't know for sure because they're not named. But what we do know is that they touched Daniel, giving him strength, but just enough to get to his hands and knees. He then spoke affirming and encouraging words to Daniel to calm his fear. He invites him to stand with assurance because he was highly esteemed by God. And not because of what he was doing for God, but because of what was God but because of what God was doing through him. And Daniel was a willing vessel through which the, the glory of God was being put on display. So the angel explains that God has heard his prayer. 
Now, I hope that's comforting to you and I. To know that if, Daniel, if God hears Daniel's prayer, then he most certainly hears ours as well. And we see that in the promise that he made with Jeremiah 29 verse 12. It says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. See, God hears our prayers and he listens to Daniel's petition. He, he sent an, an angel to Go and answer that prayer of Daniel. And I feel certain, based on all that we've learned about Daniel, that this was not a woe is me prayer. This was not a prayer about Daniel and all of his needs. This was a prayer, like we saw in Daniel 8, about Daniel's people and the fulfillment of God's promise for his people. But here's where it gets interesting. Because this angel said that he left the day that Daniel started praying. Day one of his three weeks of fasting, but was delayed 21 days. We see that he was hindered by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And he could not break free until Michael, one of the chief princes, came to his aid. Now, it's interesting because in these verses, we get a peek behind the curtain to see into the reality of the heavenly realms. And with that, let me give you just some important biblical truths about that hidden place. First, we know that angels were created by God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, both visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And these angels created by God existed before the world began. Created specifically for for the worship and service to God. But some of those angels we know from scripture rebel against God selfishly because they wanted to be like God. We learned that a host of one-third of the angels joined Satan and became what we now know to be demons. The remaining continued in faithful service to God. And please understand, as we look at Scripture, it's clear that this decision is permanent. It does not change. What that means is that there are no demons who will ever be reformed, and there are no holy angels who will ever rebel. Instead, they permanently exist in opposition to one another. And the population of that heavenly host is fixed. And the reason it's fixed is because there is no reproduction and they do not die. The reason we know that is because of what is said in Luke chapter 20, verse 35. It's talking about believers in heaven. That they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore. And here's why. Because they are like angels. And are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So we see that this angel appears before Daniel. And was opposed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. But this is not a human prince. Let me be clear. This is a demon. This is a spiritual force of darkness given the responsibility over the nation of Persia. 
influencing their government and their society with evil deception. And that's true even now, including our own country. It always has been. There has always been an evil influence throughout the world influencing governments and society to bring disruption and discord. We only stand firm in the midst of this if we choose to stand in the truth. Otherwise, we fall. We also learn from this passage that angels are not omnipresent. In other words, they've got to move from point A to point B and do not ask me how. I have no idea, all right? But somehow they've got to go from point A to point B. But where the holy angels seek to carry out the work of God, we know that demons seek to disrupt the work of God. And we need to understand that what happens in the heavenly realms is not separate from what takes place within the world of humanity. Spiritual forces have an undeniable impact on human lives. There is a battle going on right now for the hearts and minds of humanity. One is seeking to lead us to life in Christ. The other is seeking to lead us away. See, we know this because God sent an angel to comfort Daniel. And the demon got in the way in order to interrupt that comfort. So make no mistakes, demons have a powerful influence in the world, but they do not have the power to overrule God's sovereignty. They cannot prevent what God says and declares that he will accomplish. And we'll see that later on in our passage. Because even here, the demon may have delayed the angel, but he cannot destroy God's purpose. Every spiritual being operates within the limits of what God sovereignly allows. Look at how he continues in verse 15. Verse 16 says, And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me. And I have retained no strength. For how such a servant of my Lord talk with such, a, such as my Lord. For as for me, there remains, no, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one who with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O oh man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage. Be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I've come to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. If there is no one who stands firmly with me, against these forces, except Michael, your prince. After receiving the angel's report, Daniel was once again speechless, and do you blame him? <laughs> I mean, if we were seeing what he was seeing, would we have a whole lot to say? Probably not. Not to mention that Daniel has already received this vision, again, not 
one that we will learn about until next two chapters, but whatever he saw has disturbed him. It has caused him to be speechless. It spoke of this great conflict in the days ahead. And here this angel was telling him about this conflict that even exists within the spiritual realms. It was overwhelming. Before the second time, he was strengthened by God's divinely ordained messenger. He touched Daniel's lips so that he could speak. And Daniel explained humbly how hard it was to take all this in. I I love the reality of Scripture because Daniel is doing exactly what you and I would do in the same position, except I may still be passed out on the ground. I don't know. But when I woke, I would be doing the same thing. I would be telling him, okay, I think I understand, but Lord, it's overwhelming. But notice how God gives Daniel a strength that he does not possess on his own. For the third time, Think about that. Three times, this angel now touches Daniel, and he is again strengthened. He breathed life into Daniel with encouraging truth. He reminds Daniel that he doesn't have to be afraid of anything that he saw. He can stand firm in confidence when his life is securely in God's hands. You see, there is, there should be for all of us, security in God's sovereignty. There should be hope in God's faithfulness. In response, Daniel says in verse 19, your strength has allowed me to receive your words. And I would say the very same thing applies to you and I. We are given strength by God to receive his words. Because apart from the Spirit, we have no understanding of God's truth. The angel departs, and it says that he returns to the spiritual battle in the heavenly realms. He says that he's going to fight against demonic forces in Persia, knowing full well that evil forces that are now being amassed in Greece are yet to come. But none of these forces, none of them, will in any way prevent a single promise of God from being fulfilled. God promised to release his people from captivity in Persia, and he did. He promised that they would, over time, return to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and they did. That's because God has already determined the details of human history. We know that because of verse 21. He says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. That's because God wrote the narrative of human history. And having been written, it has been decreed. Every detail established under the sovereign rule of God. No one can prevent what God said he would accomplish. Not even every demonic host that has ever existed. It will be. So, as we finish up this morning, I want us to consider what it's like for you and I to live within the reality of this spiritual battle. Because there are evil forces at work in our world today. Demonic forces that seek to deceive and disrupt what is happening in our country. There are forces that seek to deceive and disrupt what God is doing in your life right now. Blinding the eyes of the unbeliever. Deceiving the world through lies and deception. Even as a Christian, they want you to believe things that simply are not 
true. Things like, God could never forgive you for a sin like that. Things like, you'll never break free from that self-destructive behavior that has haunted you your whole life long. Just quit trying. Because if you really were a Christian, it wouldn't be such a struggle. And none of these things, not a single one of them are true. Those are lies from the spiritual forces of darkness. Which is why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The question is, how do we overcome that which we cannot see? And here's the answer. You don't. Because he does. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. I want us to turn to that passage. So if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13. It's a really important verse in light of what we're talking about this morning. So I want us to look at together in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. See, there's no question that before the cross, before we came to that place of faith in Christ, we lived under the rule of sin, and were enslaved by Satan's influence. We, we were powerless to break free. But through faith in Christ, we have been set free from the power of sin's curse. And Satan no longer has authority over our lives. We do not belong to him. Which is why he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Now don't miss it. The strength of his might, not your might, right? This is not a battle you win. This is a battle he wins for you. It's why when you go on in that same passage and it talks about, the full, it says put on the full armor of God. The armor of God. It's his armor, not your armor. So you're going to put on, be girded with his truth. You're going to put on the, the breastplate of his righteousness, you're going to wear that gospel of his peace and the helmet of his salvation. We don't go on the offense against evil forces. We stand firm in the truth of God's word. We take shelter in the shield of faith. We test the spirits. And if it doesn't line up with God's word, there's only one other option. We don't fight this battle based on how we feel or what we think. We do battle based on who God is and what he says. Not on how we feel or what we think, but on who God is and on what God says. 
See, Satan's desire is to distract. To distract us from the understanding of who we are in Christ. What it means to belong to Him. He wants us to to minimize the transforming power of the cross and say to ourselves, well, that might have been true for someone else, but it's, it's just not true for me. He wants us to overlook the indwelling work of the Spirit. Because here's the deal, if he can get Christians to live normal, everyday lives that look like everyone else, he wins. He wins. Remember, it's a propaganda war. Filling our minds with misinformation, it's a battle for the hearts and minds of humanity, and there is no neutral ground. At any given time, we are either being conformed to this world, or we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, transformed by the truth of God's word. So if you really want to do battle, then the best thing you can do is go to your knees. If you really want to do battle, the best thing you can go to is, is do is go to your knees. And the reason I know that's true is because, again, back to Ephesians chapter 6, as you follow down that thought and he goes through all the armor of God, he then says in verse 18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So once again, we do battle on our knees. We assume that posture of dependence upon God. We look to Him alone for our strength and for our comfort. We intercede for one another. We rely on the work of the Spirit. We know Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So yes, he can forgive a sin like that. Because his word says, a broken and contrite heart. Someone who is truly repentant before God, he will not refuse. Yes, you can overcome those destructive habits. Not in your own strength, but in your surrender. Every Christian struggles. But hear me on this. Not a single one is defeated. Because we stand in the blood-bought victory of Jesus Christ. There are battles to be fought. And every one of us face them every single day. But please understand, the end has been determined. He wins. And it was decided at the cross. And when he returns, it's over. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a peek behind the curtain. I think it helps us to see that there's more going on in life than what we can see with our own eyes in front of us. That there is a spiritual realm. Spiritual battles. Forces that intend to deceive and disrupt to delay and and, and diminish the truth of your word as it's being spread across the world. So Lord, as we think about that reality, thank you for reminding us that it's not our job to somehow be strong enough to go take on these spiritual forces. You tell us not to do that. Instead, stand firm in your truth, putting on your armor, relying on your righteousness, your salvation, your peace. So, Lord, as we live each day, may we live them on our knees before a good and holy God 
who is sovereign over all. And when we stand with you, there is not a safer place in all of the universe that we could possibly be. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. Let me encourage you guys to do something this week. I'm sure as you meet in small groups that you spend time in prayer. But could you take extra time this week just to pray for one another? And I would encourage you to take a passage like Ephesians 6 that we touched on this morning and pray through the truths of that passage. Turn those truths into prayers and know that they apply to each and every one of us as children of God. So take some time to do that this week.